NBA ASAP. Hello and welcome to another episode of MBA ASAP, where we explore business skills and knowledge so you can level up your expertise and learn skill sets that will make you more valuable at your job and career, or help you start something on the side, a little side hustle, or let you quit your job and start your own business. I'm your host, John Cousins. Let's get started. Hi, and welcome. This episode is a freewheeling discussion of the world of computer technology and information systems. My guest is my son, Spencer Cousins, and he's been helping me to understand the arcane, Byzantine, labyrinthine world of computer programming languages, coding, and all the infrastructure and how it all fits together. The internet, the web, front end, back end, uh, full stack web development, all these kind of terms. My talks with Spencer have been incredibly enlightening to me and have helped me to get over some of the big humps of the learning curve trying to figure out coding languages and computers and how it all fits together. And I really wanted to get him on the podcast because I think this information can be really valuable to lots of us. And I wanted to have him share his knowledge and his really great way of making these subjects clear and understandable. So this is sort of a wide-ranging conversation, and uh, we go back and forth, and it's not in any type of necessarily a sequence, and only over time does all of the sort of ecosystem start to get comprehensible and knit together. If you know something about computers, I think it'll be a great way to just sort of geek out on it and learn a little bit, maybe. And if not, it's a great way to get over this initial curve Uh, this initial learning curve of where the heck to even start. You know, there are so many competing systems and developments are happening so fast that I found it incredibly difficult to know where to begin learning, how to continue learning, and what was the most important and fundamental pieces and how to prioritize them. So this learning curve can be really steep and initially it's almost impenetrable. Uh, So much jargon and acronyms. Our world is so infused with technology and smartphones and the web and internet and computers and coding and programming that I felt really compelled to understand it better. The tools are available. I want to be taking advantage of them, and I think a lot of you may want to as well. So I hope that you find this really valuable. I mean, I've personally witnessed how Spencer's journey and the acquisition of these skills has transformed his life and his opportunities. And to whatever extent we do the same, we can all benefit. The other thing is that besides the ubiquity and the power of all this coding and what we could do when we know it, there's these incredible tools now to learn all these things for free. We have all these MOOCs, the M-O-O-C, you know, the the massively online open courses through Udemy and Udacity and Coursera and edX and just incredible courses that you can take and Free Code Academy and Code Academy. And these are all great. And Khan Academy. I mean, there's all great tools out there 
But when you start looking at all these tools and all the different choices of where you should start, it becomes you become paralyzed. It's like a Hobson's choice. There's too many choices. What I was hoping to do here is to have a, a casual conversation that kind of helps us all to start to get clear on the jargon and what is important and what maybe can be left to later. And maybe as we learn one thing, the next pieces will fall into place. And that's been, that's been a, a, a real challenge for me. So I wanted to share this with you. This is me and my son, Spencer, talking about computers. It's loose and casual, and you can hear my granddaughter in the background, River, and she's almost two, and she chimes in from time to time, give her two cents on computers. So sit back, enjoy. Um, it may be the kind of thing that you listen to a couple times to understand. If some of the, I was going to put all of the terms that we use in the show notes, but then it just got to be too much. It's really quite dense as I listen to it. You can just Google these terms and any ones that you don't understand. Some of them you will, some of them you never heard before. If you just Google them, you'll get a quick explanation and can understand this stuff. So without further ado, Enjoy this podcast on computers and coding and all the arcane, uh, impenetrable jargon so that finally it will be penetrable, to be clear. Enjoy. Catch you later. So, yeah, I thought this would be good to talk about different, you know, things with uh, just with computers and computer science and programming and all that, all that kind of good stuff. Yeah. And, uh. It's becoming so huge as a part of our daily lives. I mean, everyone has a supercomputer in their pocket. <laughs> and there's River. <laughs> Hi, sweetie. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, exactly. And uh, just, I mean, there's just all these languages and, uh, and, and all the different words. Just like we were just working on GitHub, you know, that, mm-hmm. that as a place where you can store all your different code and work on it and... I'm just blown away. And it mm-hmm. seems like it's broken down into a couple of different things like, uh, uh, you know, the, the whole web thing with HTML and CSS mm-hmm. and then JavaScript. And then on the front end and then the back end kind of thing with uh, PHP and all. But now, I don't mm-hmm. know, is that even worth learning SQL and PHP? Because that whole idea of JavaScript everywhere, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, JavaScript's really quickly becoming a universal language for the front ends and the back end. <laughs> hey, going fast. Uh, yeah, so with Node uh, on the back end, it just uh, really opened up using the same language that everyone had to learn to use in browser technology. Right, for the and, front uh, end. And now you can use it for mm-hmm. the back end and everything else. Yeah. So it's Node.js, so, J- Node. huh? The, uh, yeah. And was that a Google thing or something, did you say? It was, it was originally, yeah. It's the Google V8 engine. When they made that open source, then uh, they were able to take that runtime engine that Google Chrome used in the browser and put it wherever they wanted. Wow, so that they, they did it originally so that JavaScript could be used in the browser as uh, a place to, to run the code actually in the browser. And then they thought, well, heck, why can't we deploy that on the back end too and all? and. Yeah. I'm not sure if it was even an idea by Google originally. Mm-hmm. They might have just made it open source to, hey, it's uh, a lot more effective for uh, debugging and making like really strong software uh, because you just have so many eyes on it. Um, and because it got a lot of interest as being an independent runtime engine, you, they got to put it uh, on the back end with Node, 
uh, people started building uh, applications with it with Electron. So, um, and this is V8. It's called is it the V8 engine. Yeah, it's called the V8. Wow, so uh, making it open source. So right there, probably, it was like, if we make it open source, it'll probably take off in ways we haven't anticipated. Exactly. And, and yeah. so now it's become this huge, uh, you know, ubiquitous standard. And that's just amazing. And it makes so much sense. Instead of having, oh, now you got to learn PHP and SQL and all mm-hmm. these other things on the back end. and uh, Yeah, exactly. That you can just access your database with JavaScript using Node. And then make your database with JavaScript using Mongo, Mongo and just using uh, object notation to store all of your uh, data. And if and doing that, and then this whole idea, you know, as we've just been seeing too, is uh, this uh, Amazon Web Services AWS and this Lambda thing, where it's you can run. I think I guess I don't know if I'm using the right term though. Instances of the code. And if you use Java or whatever, you know, uh, JavaScript, I mean, um, and then that you don't have to put up any servers or anything like that or even figure out how to do all the, uh, the different parts. You just, you just have it up there on, uh, on AWS and it'll scale mm-hmm. as much as you need and stuff. And they give you, I think it's free, a million hits or something uh, a month or something before you mm-hmm. can even charge. It's just unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. I've heard that that uh, can add up quickly um, with people doing home automation and stuff, and uh, that like they end up running a lot of automatic hits to update their systems and stuff like that. So um, it's definitely, uh, when you're first starting out, a million hits might seem like a ton, but as you scale up, it's, you know, you hit that million mark pretty quickly, is from what I've heard. Oh, and that makes sense, yeah, because if you have 10 or 100 items in your house and everything is interconnected, that mm-hmm. my buddy's doing that. He's got a uh, – he bought an Alexa so that he can automate his house. So he's mm-hmm. – I, I think they must have quick patches where you can, you know, say like, uh, you know, Alexa, you know, make it 66 degrees or uh, – Exactly, you know, yeah. Whatever. Turn on the lights. And he's using this Philips light system so he can turn on all his backyard lights and the lights in the house and – all kinds of different things. It's like it's like the uh, it's like an intelligent clapper, the old clapper. <laughs> Clap on, <Right>? grandpa. <laughs> <laughs> but now you just have it from your smartphone, and you can uh, clap from the airport if you want to turn your lights on or off, or uh, you're going on a trip and something like that. You forgot to turn your porch light on. You know, you can uh, automate your house from the road if you do if you travel a lot or if you. Uh, ends up going on vacation or view cameras and stuff that you have set up like security yeah, exactly. cameras and stuff in fact yesterday i think it was amazon announced this new service where they're going to um uh it's called key amazon key where they are you allow them into your house and as soon as you get into your ha- they, they get in your house you have a camera that's on them so you can verify that they're not destroying your house and all and they can come in and they're making uh different uh uh, services like merry maids and all those kind of things mm-hmm. available so they can have people come in and even think about when they start delivering food from whole foods or something they can come in populate your mm-hmm. refrigerator you don't have to worry about mm-hmm. you know all that stuff and so and then they're on webcam the whole time and they know it so <laughs> yeah they're using using webcam as a way to verify you know why would you le- let scary people in your house but when you mm-hmm. think even of uh Lyft and Uber and all these other services like that or Airbnb, like I'm not going to go to somebody's house. They may be an axe murderer. All that kind of trust builds up pretty quick. And I mean, this whole like cloud culture, I guess you could call it this like prosumer culture, you know, where um, 
individuals connected to the network are all contributing a slight amount. Like it really started with YouTube. I feel like with people making their own uh, webcasts and things like that. Uh, and other people, you know, someone who has a webcast will watch someone else's webcast and it just creates this interconnected network of prosumers. And I think that that culture is really spreading out to the bulk of society as you see these like uh, things like Lyft and Uber and Airbnb where each individual is contributing like rides in my one individual car or, you know, you can stay in my back room or I have a little casita in the backyard that I rent out, something like that that they don't have to manage anything huge. It's just they're offering what they have personally. And uh, that that creates this huge ecosystem that you end up with a ton of value over. Right. Sort of uh, um, getting out the latent value of these, these assets that we have, like our cars, you know, that aren't used. So, well, we can use it for this or, or even eBay where you're selling your old clothes or, you know, furniture, yeah. all kinds of stuff. And it releases that latent value and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And what did you call it? Prosumer? Yeah, prosumer culture, like a producer consumer. consumer. Uh Yeah, consumer producer. Um, Something like Etsy, you know, like craft Mm -hmm. culture, that kind of thing. Maker culture uh, has really been growing. Well, yeah, and Wikipedia, and and then we can talk about all the open source, Linux, and all these kind of, or even back to the V8. You know, you make these things open Mm -hmm. source and people start doing. And it seems like a lot of the tools I see now are. You know, this is an open source, blah, 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 kind of, you know. It is, yeah. Language. And that's what we've discovered is the uh, open source. Well, it seems slow to start, that it's slow to get people to adopt, uh, but it just grows and grows almost exponentially while it uh, gets gains popularity. As people learn to use it, people can create new libraries in Python, for example, to like this whole uh, data science with Python revolution that's been going on as people make these libraries like pandas and scipy uh, for really like calculating these huge numbers that you could only use uh, like uh, MATLAB or other like scientific computing like C++. So it's ways to access uh, big data, big data sets and uh, for science and all. Cool. So Python has become the language for that kind of stuff to, to, uh, yeah, it's become a, a, yeah, exactly. It's, uh, it's become really popular with data science and, uh, is making moves. It's not there yet, but it's making moves to, you know, replace R eventually as the functionality increases. I see. I thought R was more of a statistics program, but it's more of a accessing. So how would you do that? You'd use Python and then make a program and somehow it would pull or, you know, slice and dice or access uh, big data sets? Yeah, yeah. So you can uh, wow. create programs to like do data mining with Python um, that can grab the data off of other databases and other APIs and things like that. Um, and then you can use uh, Python libraries to analyze that data, uh-huh. uh, to visualize that data, uh, things like that, to do statistical calculations. Um, basically, every specific language that has come along to do these scientific purposes and things like that uh, as, as scientists learn them, and they also tend to know a bit of Python, they you know start thinking, well, why can't I just use Python to do all of this stuff? And, um, and that's kind of how these libraries are born. Wow, so it's sort of like JavaScript taking over, you know, like, well, I know JavaScript already, so let me use it in these other places where I have to do so. Mm-hmm. I know Python, so... 
Right. So scientists, I, I bet it'd be great for even astronomers and stuff. You can just like Absolutely. say, oh, I want to search th- this quadrant of the, you know, of of the universe data that's coming off of this telescope or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, wow, very cool. Yeah. And, and so, so it's interesting. So learning, I mean, obviously as basic skills, learning HTML5 and learning CSS so you know how to do the make a website kind of, you know, the visual mm-hmm. part of it, and then learning JavaScript so you have all the uh, the programming elements for making basically full-stack web apps or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Those, kind of, those three things are good. And then Python is probably good as an, a language to learn so that you could start crunching big data sets and get the big data yeah. part of things. And, yeah, Python's become a, a real centerpiece of... Uh, centerpiece. Of data science. And it depends on where you're coming from a lot of the time. You know, sometimes people have previous uh, data experience working more with Excel, working more with uh, R, uh, MATLAB. Oh, okay. And Excel is sort of, SQL is kind of like an Excel kind of database setup is that what it so is what? yeah it's like a non-rendered excel spreadsheet in a way it's uh, deals with its data in rows and columns mm-hmm. like so excel, it, uh-huh. it's very uh, laid out the same way but um and and you can get programs to like visualize those tables and things like that mm-hmm. but um where sql really excels <laughs> over excel uh <laughs> is uh in doing cross references so that you can have different tables referencing each other and referencing this ID, this name, this email, and going into more detail about that person. That so penetrating each like in the third dimension, uh, the, uh, yeah, across tables or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so those relational tables is a big uh, asset to SQL. Excel has the pivot tables that are kind of, I guess, yeah, kind yeah, of, that's kind, kind of, of similar. Um, and I, I think that works in a similar way. I'm, uh-huh. I haven't gotten into Excel pivot tables personally, but from what I understand, it works in a similar way, but it's just not as scalable that you can use right. the pivot tables right. up to a certain point, but where an SQL database can really, uh, easily at a low level, uh, make relationships between these tables. And then to, and to access SQL, you need PHP. That's the, that's the coding language for that. Well, you can access S- an SQL database with a number of different languages, like Python, for example. Uh, the oh. Django framework is great for doing backends, um, and that uh, comes with SQL Lite, SQL Lite for uh, its standard database just baked right in. But it also has support for uh, PostgreSQL and MySQL. So that's the database, and Django is a framework that uses PHP, uh, uses Python as the language. Yeah, yeah, it uses oh, Python, and it's one of the more popular ones. You know, Flask is very popular as well. Um, it's a little more lightweight than Django. Django is kind of like a full, uh, like built-in templating agent, and it has a built-in server for testing, like a little lightweight server, so you can see if it's uh, serving properly and things like that. Wow. So, um, and those would be considered frameworks for backend development, for backend construction. Of, of yeah, backend web development. Wow. Yeah. So, for those kind of things, to use Django, then say you need to know SQL and Python. You'd have to be uh, yeah, familiar yeah. with those guys. Mm-hmm. So, those are good languages to learn, and then uh, and then GitHub obviously is a great place to go and put your stuff, right? To go and and keep your code, and then you mm-hmm. can make. You know, as you develop it, you can see the different uh, iterations as you move forward. And so, if something screws up, you can st- take a step back and you can collaborate mm-hmm. with people and all. Yeah. 
Yeah, there's a lot of great resources on on GitHub too, as far as uh, discovering new libraries and things like that, and getting the source code for the libraries that um, of these open source tools that other people have made, like uh, React, for example, things like that. So open source, and then take those and then modify them for whatever your purposes are, and you don't have to reinvent yeah. the wheel, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Or just download them to your machine, and then you can use them from your server, kind of thing. Oh. And so what, what is .NET? Is .NET a Microsoft environment or something? Yeah, .NET's a Microsoft environment, and so it's compatible with like C Sharp. Um, and you, so you see a bit of uh, like ASP.NET, ASP, um, which is, I believe, more of an open source. I'm not all that familiar with the Microsoft uh, ecosystem. But from what I understand, ASP is the uh, uh, more open source side of .NET, where C Sharp is the more... Uh, like straight up Microsoft, and then there's also VB, which is a Visual Basic uh, kind wow. of a an easier language to get started with. It uh, kind of is popular in certain circles and kind of uh, not so popular in others. It's one of those languages that you know you either love it or you hate it kind of things. So you got this whole C family. <clears throat> I mean, it's kind of strange that there's like Java and JavaScript, and they're like completely different, but they're kind of yeah. named the same. And then you have C and C plus and C plus plus and C sharp. Are they all similar, or are they like Java and JavaScript kind of kind of named the same but radically different? You know. Yeah, I guess you could say that it's um, they're from the same family tree that as things kind of developed. Um, I guess you could say that C plus plus and Objective C uh, are the two main operating systems of uh, traditional like PC versus Mac uh, architecture that all of your programs or games or whatever that you would run on a PC would be written in C plus plus. And all everything that you would run on a Mac would be written in Objective C, and they kind of kept the name C because C became really a, a popular, uh, universal mid-level programming language. Yeah, so they're like taking the ideas of C and then making them a little more robust with object orientation. That's where you first see like object orientation classes and things like that. Is uh, C plus plus and Objective C, and as those progressed. Oh, okay. Uh, Microsoft really got a lot more Java influence and wanted to make more of a Java-like language and ended up making C-sharp, which is really um, more akin to Java. Uh, So you see a lot of Java developers branching over to C-sharp because the syntax is so similar and vice versa. So uh, that makes it a little easier as far as picking up uh, professional developers for Microsoft, they can sort of poach the Java developers. And and Java then is more of a, what's the environment for Java? Like Linux? Is that the... Um, well, Java can run on anything. Right. That, that's, that was the big... Right once, run anywhere Java. kind of thing? Is that the deal? That it could run on Mac or PC. And uh, hmm. you know, that's becoming less of a novelty. You know, when you have technologies like Docker, you have Electron, where you see in JavaScript as a write once, run anywhere kind of technology, that uh-huh. it, it's seeming like that that's kind of encroaching on um, Java's original scope, I guess you could say, of, uh-huh. uh, of their original intentions. And what Java has moved to now, I would say most commonly, is Android development. Uh, all the apps on Android are written in Java. Even in that uh, CS50 class, that Harvard class, they start out with, well, first they start with Scratch, and then it's into C. So C is still just 
regular old C is still popular, maybe just for a, in for the pedagogy of it, or is it popular for uh, you know as a well, as a language as well? Or? It's it's really efficient as far as memory use and use of computer resources. So the Mars rover, for example, written in C. Because uh-huh. uh, you don't want to have any extra sort of uh, exactly. housekeeping uh, mm-hmm. overhead or something. You, you want to make sure that um, all of your calculations are done with the minimum amount of memory space possible. You want to make sure that you're using the most efficient uh, use of your computing resources as possible. So it's popular with uh, robotics and uh, that kind of thing, where, where you need a little more uh, efficiency. Where resources are still kind <laughs> of scarce or constrained. But And that's another thing, it seems like, you know, uh, computational resources and storage resources and all and bandwidth are all just like not as critical as they used to be because they're just so mm-hmm. huge. You know, the, the, yeah. the amounts. I mean, the C was more popular when that was a bigger deal, mm-hmm. and now as computing's gotten cheaper, you know, people are using more Python and JavaScript. Uh, and they're a little more wasteful, you know. Um, from a C perspective, they're a lot more wasteful of resources. But from but, a developer um, perspective, they're from a developer to perspective, it's a lot easier to use these languages. It's a lot easier to write in these languages than um, telling the computer specifically how many bits you want for this particular calculation, right. where you want this pointer to point to in a specific memory block. It's a lot of things that, like, you kind of roll your eyes and you have to be like, okay, tell the computer every little detail of what it needs to do. Um, whereas Python, you can just start cruising and it, mm-hmm. it kind of like, you know, does its own garbage collection and stuff like that is uh, one of the major aspects of the higher level languages. So where would you say would be a good place to learn Python? I mean, we, we tried that uh, University of Virginia one on Udacity, which is really good. Mm-hmm. I may go back to that and try to... Yeah, I remember, you know... That was a lot of fun, and the idea of making uh, oh, your own crawler. search engine, yeah, yeah. is uh, appealing. Still, you know, as a beginner, usable, yeah, yeah. it's still appealing. Yeah, yeah. that uh, that is a really cool project. And um, at the time, you know, it, it, it interests me for a little bit, and then you know, kind of fell off. I'm sure a lot of people have similar situations of you know, they you try to learn programming 18 times, and it's the 19th time that sticks, or something like that. Well, that's what I, I've, I'm the same exact way. Yeah, you know, I just keep coming back, say I got to do it, and then I get a little bit, and then it sort of falls off or something. You get some momentum, and it wanes. You know? mm-hmm. But yeah, as far as pro, uh, Python resources, there's uh, a ton out there. A lot of people um, consider Python a great first language. Um, I tried it as my first language. It didn't quite work for me. I, I went for C as my first like real programming language. Uh, and some people need that. Some people need the lower level. But for people who can take the abstraction and have an idea of how programming works uh, in general, that yeah, Python can be a great first language. There's uh, Code Academy has a good Python resource. Uh, Udacity has some great Python resources. Uh, Udemy, you know, Udemy is a, a paid service, but it's usually pretty cheap. And uh, and they've got some great Python sources. Uh, Coursera, you know, I think uh, they've got some Python for everyone, and then going deeper into Python for data science and things like that. Um, and then Python can also be used in robotics as there's some like python for robotics courses out there too so depending on your interests and where you're coming from there's a lot of different resources for python out there 
Well, and like you said, the other one is edX with that uh, CS50 course as a place introduction. Exactly, yeah. that That's just really remarkable. It's the intro. It's like the most popular course at Harvard and really well done and put together. And you, you had said that C was where you f- first really got an idea about, okay, this is how programming works and stuff. And so it was good <laughs> as a learning, you know, learning environment. I, I just didn't have very much tolerance for abstraction, and it took me, honestly, learning uh, – how binary compresses into hexadecimal Mm -hmm. to have that aha moment of like, they said, okay, this is how binary compresses into hexadecimal. Um, We just did another like step, a black box step, and we compressed the C into hexadecimal, which goes into binary. And I was like, Oh, you know that. So it took me actually getting down to the actual binary to like have that, Oh, that's what a programming language is. Uh-huh, uh, yeah. yeah. So on the uh, other side of it, you know, it seems obvious like, oh, okay, that's, you know, but um, when, when you're looking at it from the outside, it's it just is so confusing um, that I remember it was this big, just like mind blow moment uh, of what a, a programming language actually did and, and cool. stuff. And, and that was kind of the, uh, my first big step, you know, the, the crossing the threshold into really, uh, taking it professionally. Wow, and that's very enlightening. That that's what that's what did it, and it it came from C. And I like what you said about black box steps. That's that's the key. There's too many black box steps. I mean, the, the apps and levels of abstraction they do that so that it's easier for a developer to develop, and not like you say have to tell the computer everything. But to to understand it initially, it's like why am I doing this? And to get down to that level, that's mm-hmm. really interesting, and that that makes good sense. The other thing that I don't really, you know, that I'm still trying to figure out, and it goes way back, I mean, because even when I started with Fortran and stuff, um, the uh, the terminal and the command line, that's all it was. I mean, before that, it was batch processing where you'd give a, mm-hmm. you know, a, a guy a whole bunch of cards, and they'd put it in the card reader, and that would zip through, and then they'd give you a printed out reader. But then when terminals mm-hmm. came along, suddenly you had this command line. And that seems so antiquated and old-fashioned, and now you have all these graphical interfaces, graphical user interfaces, and all other kind of tools that make it easier to interact with the computer. But it still seems like the command line uh, is a a very powerful tool, and that seems like C in a way, like sort of too too close to the to the binary or something, too close to the machine Mm -hmm. sometimes. Yeah, and that's why developers love it, is because you are really close to the machine. Mm-hmm. And uh, it gives you options that you can't click on. That uh-huh. you know nobody created a button for certain commands, but there are typed commands, um, and you can also do like bash scripting, command line scripting. Um, so yeah, even when you said like, oh, the command line seems outdated, I, was, I like basically, <laughs> I could hear the developers in, in my head just like squirming, right, being like, the command not. line is super relevant. It, right. it really is. Which is amazing that it's lasted. That's that's the one tool in a way that that is legacy all the way back to you know the seventies and stuff when when green yeah. screen terminals first came along. It's really remarkable, and we don't talk about even those languages. I guess C is the closest thing to. A programming language from back then. I think that was developed at Bell Labs or something in the in the nineteen seventies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's come a long way. And SQL is another good example of a technology that's has stuck around. You uh, know, I yeah. think that mm-hmm. was developed in the mid eighties maybe. Uh I mean yeah. the version that we have now. Uh 
And, you know, SQL in general has just stayed relevant for the past 45 years. You know, it, it's really as these uh, other languages kind of come and go and there's hype surrounding it or, you know, things like that, uh, that's SQL uh, as a database system has really stuck around. But um, now we're starting to see a bit of disruption there with Mongo and the, the JavaScript object notation uh, database structure because that's really flexible you know it's not these rigid rows and columns it's just you know you can add another attribute to your object it's it's really no big deal well that sounds cool and that's that bring i mean there's always this balance between the learning curve and uh and what you know from a legacy thing that you already learned even with like typing, you know, we still use the QWERTY keyboard, even though we don't need a QWERTY keyboard anymore. Exactly, you know, yeah. Dvorak was much more efficient, but everybody knew how to type on a QWERTY. So, mm-hmm. no, you know, then there's no mechanical constraints exactly. or speed or whatever to keep the QWERTY, but we did. And the same thing is like, do I want to learn a new language or do I want to stay with the one I know? And just so mm-hmm. you have these ones that this whole, as everybody learns stuff, it takes a lot of a lot of new features or a lot of benefits to get over that inertia of, Oh my God, I got to learn a new, a new thing, you know, <laughs> learning curve. Exactly. Yeah. And what is the trade-off? Like you were saying with Dvorak and versus QWERTY, it's like, yeah, I'm going to gain an extra 15 seconds a page in right. efficiency Lunch typing, <laughs> but I'm going to have to spend three months learning the, right. be comfortable with this new key setup, you know? Right. And it's, it is kind of the same thing of, Not uh, a big enough benefit for the, for the cost of the learning. Yeah. And that's why JavaScript on the back end has become so popular, is that typically the track was you start with front-end development and you learn HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. And then you go into back-end development and you might learn PHP, like a Laravel or a, you know Python Django kind of situation. And uh, that you've got your back-end. Ruby on Rails, really mm-hmm. popular back-end. Oh, right. Uh-huh. Ruby on Rails, too. Yeah, another, yeah. But now it's kind of bringing those front-end developers to the back-end so that they can bring their JavaScript experience there. And then you don't have to split your study time of be like, well, I'm like 70% good at JavaScript and I'm 85% good at Python, so you know I'm stronger on the back-end. Uh, you could just say, you know, I'm this good at JavaScript and it works. The I browser, the whole thing. middleware, the back-end, the database, everywhere. Yeah, it makes great sense. Well, why don't we leave it there and uh, and pick it up again, you know? And let me see if I can uh, actually get this to, uh, to you know, <laughs> yeah, sure. Find where the recording is and all. But that was yeah, just great. Fun. Cool. Really. Sorry cool. about River popping in, and making a little cameo oh, appearance. Oh no, it's great. It's great. It should <laughs> cool. be just relaxed stuff, you know, just talking. Well, I'll catch you later. Catch you later. Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. The show notes are available on the website. Just go to mba-asap.com and click on podcast on the menu along the top. And there you'll find all things related to the podcast. Just scroll down and there are links to the show notes for each episode. If you have any questions or suggestions, email me at john.cousins at mba-asap.com. And follow me on Twitter. I'm very active there. My handle is at JJ Cousins. And send me a connect request on LinkedIn. I'd love to connect with you there. And go to the website and sign up for the mailing list. Thanks again. Until next time, peace. MBA ASAP.
Fresh aim, aim.